filibuster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, Discrimination, Wage, and Litigation Solutions for Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They want you to know that your rights matter, you deserve to be free from harassment, and you deserve to work. They cover workplace discrimination and wage theft, non-competition and non-solicitation litigation, civil rights, takings and disability, and a lot more. For a free consultation, go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. A group of men got together to record a song, one song and one song only. Uh, It is a song called Music Sounds Better With You is by the group Stardust, uh, which is one half of Daft Punk, uh, a DJ and another guy who I don't know if he's done anything else at all. Um, But they did the one song and it was the the perfect and in fact, the only song of the summer uh, that has ever been or ever will be. Uh, and then they disbanded because they were like, we can't possibly, what are we, what else can we do? We've achieved all that can be achieved. So let's stop. Let's not try and do it over again. Let's just, this is it. This is our one and only Adam, thing. Adam, so, uh, I, I, I have, I have, Adam, Adam, hold on. I, I have, I have a proposition for you. Is Jason actually a Gen Xer? Like, I don't care what his age is. But... He recognizes a song of the summer, which disqualified no, I'm, I'm talking about his general his general his general feeling i think jason is just a gen xer and he and needs also, to just admit that also he's not a gen xer because generation x does not exist it is a hallucination uh, uh on a massive scale it's not a thing no no gen x it doesn't exist no but yeah. jason is a gen xer what? here's where i i go one up past both of you and go with the galaxy brain take which is that none of these generational uh dividers have ever been meaningful um and I, that's of not even not, me but you're a gen a xer jason jason none of them matter but you're still a gen xer i was born in 1982 i do not think i am either a millennial or a gen xer because i do you have, have pick uh, one you have to pick one you what, don't which one do you actually pick? pick one pick one pick one right now uh in the words of of uh rush uh if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Okay, if you're if you're if you're if you're <laughs> glomming onto Rush, you're a Gen Xer. I think that makes me a boomer, actually. Yeah, um, by age. Uh, <laughs> again, Gen X. that song probably came out when, uh, like, a, a proper young person would have. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't even born at that point. I don't think. So, um, I learned that Jason doesn't recognize the genius of Len tonight. Uh, not as the song of the summer because there's only the one, and it's uh, music sounds better with you by Stardust. No, no, you, you don't recognize ancient. annual songs. There's a single just song of Jason. the You're summer, ancient. the entire season, the summer every year, for all eternity. There's only one song, not the, an annual yeah, right. song. This of, is the one, the one that will be already is about the songs uh, of summers. They're just all ancient people on this. There wasn't one. You were talking about generations. This is more interesting. I promise. I, I don't know if that's true, Adam. It, hey, it hey, well, down to their name. Like Stardust is like the perfect name for someone doing the song of the summer. Uh, true. Everything about it is perfect. All right, we're going to have to find this song. In, uh... oh, Adam, I'll let you do the intro. No, we won't. You don't right. have to do it, Adam. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United, and 
generations that may or may not exist and singular songs of singular summers uh, podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by these two bickering fools, Ben Bromley and Jason Anderson. We're all from Black and Red. I don't think we're even bickering about the same subjects. No, like you're bickering about the subject we're we're going to bicker about. We're we're bickering, but the, the subjects are all over the place. (laughs) <laughs> this is among the most disjointed conversations I've ever been a part of this podcast or otherwise. And that is saying something, friends. We're all from blackandredunited.com. We talk about DC United most of the time. Uh, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in this first segment. DC United has completed their super draft along with the rest of Major League Soccer. Uh, and we've got some other news to get into. And in the second segment, we will invite Paul Tenorio from The Athletic on to talk about Major League Soccer's ongoing labor situation um because there's a lot and also very little happening right now on that front and it's really important uh to to the league and to to fans so we're going to talk about it before we do anything though ben what are you drinking assuming that drinking is an activity that one can partake in and exists and is not a thing that breaks down along generational lines what are you drinking you don't need to come with me with your bs you you were the one of the ones who was uh making sure that things don't exist. Uh, I'm actually drinking one of your favorite uh, bourbons. I'm drinking Eagle Rare. Uh, That's a good one. It was on sale, not on sale, but it was available at my, uh, at my liquor store and it's usually not available. And so I was, I was just like trying to decide between that and um, Buffalo Trace. They had both of them for sale uh which is very rare cuz they usually sell out very quickly and i was just like yeah i'm i'm going to buy this bottle of uh eagle rare and it's good it's a good one it's, it's actually exactly it's the same good. mash bill as buffalo trace it's exactly yeah. the same recipe they just age it a little more carefully right maybe for a yeah, little bit good. longer I, i'm liking i'm liking it yeah, eagle rare is pretty damn good yeah. yeah, I am drinking uh, out of a bottle of Angel's Envy, uh, another Kentucky bourbon that uh, my neighbor Tony gave me for Christmas. It was very kind of him. Uh, and so I'm I'm enjoying that tonight. Nice. How about you, Jason? Uh, let's go. Let's end our bickering. We're going to go three for three on bourbon. Um, nice. Well I've, I've got my uh, Knob Creek 12 uh, year barrel select that I uh, got as part of the exchange for going to Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, and so I'm sitting on that. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. And we had the era of good break, feelings. I broke the truce immediately. That is the most short-lived era of good feelings yeah. possibly. I couldn't. I, it wasn't even one full sentence. No, not like a half a clause. Well, it was nice while it lasted. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we start tonight with the most super of all the drafts. DC United were were busy last Thursday afternoon, using their fourth overall pick to take attacker, attacker uh, Kamarni Smith out of Clemson uh, before trading for the very next pick and selecting center back Kevin DeShields out of Wake Forest. Uh, later on in the draft in the second round, they... Michael they, DeShields. Michael DeShields. Why did I write Kevin DeShields? I'm sorry. You, you might that, know a Kevin DeShields. I might. I don't know. I think I may have turned him and Kevin Paredes into a single person. Okay. Or Kevin uh, Payne, just like was in your brain yeah i mean he why wouldn't he be honestly uh why would he be the, man, <laughs> the man's a legend benjamin 
I don't know what he's doing in my well, head. Okay, we, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but... <laughs> we, we're going to be angry internet people now. Partially. Uh, in the second round, DC United selected fullback Logan. Is it Panchot? Pancho? I actually am I think it's not Pancho. Sure. Pancho uh, um, from Stanford. Yeah. Um, guy with time in the, the youth national teams. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about him more as the segment goes on. But uh, pr- busy day. I think the, the top line takeaway for me is, is that uh, Dave Casper had a plan and executed it. The, I, I really don't think, at least out of those first two choices, either of them was decided on the day or even the week of the draft. I think they had their minds set and they they said, these are our guys and here's how we're going to try to get them. They sent them hats and scarves so they would be ready to be drafted by DC United. Yeah. And they, they executed it. Yeah, I, I think that Dave Casper is... I think we've, we, we've, we know this at this point, he is an excellent college drafter. And so I'm, I have no problems with him choosing the people that he wanted to choose and not choosing uh, uh, the generation Adidas contracts that MLS decided to uh, choose. I trust Dave Casper's opinion on college players. And so if these are the players that he decided were, right for DC United. I'm good with that. I, I think I, I, I'm willing to be fully behind his choices. Yeah. I, I mean, the, ultimately the, the generation Adidas thing, um, it's not it's our still, money. It's still, I mean, it, it takes up cap space versus not, but you know, it used to be a bigger deal because the cap used yeah. to be a tighter margin. Um, and generally speaking, um, you know, the players that get those deals get like a hundred thousand, 125. It's very rare. There's been a hand, like not even a handful of cases where a player has a salary that is substantial enough for the, the generation Adidas protection to be, um, a huge factor, uh, in your thought process. I, I'm of the opinion that over the last few years, why those players have gone so early so often isn't even really the cap so much i mean it's nice it's always nice to get more cap flexibility don't get me wrong but um the thing that draws teams in is that these players are younger so you have more time to develop them and the reason they caught the eye of the league to get those offers is that they are high high end players these are players that would have been high draft picks no matter what um so the protection the salary side of it isn't really that big of a deal um right generation adidas is just a tool that MLS uses to entice underclassmen into the draft. Um, And the, the cap flexibility is because they're not, they have a separate fund to pay for GA. And so they keep that accounting separate for the teams as well. It, and that protection, that, that flexibility really only applies for a couple years at most, sometimes only one year if the player comes in and contributes right away. And then they, they're usually at that point, going to get paid more than a college draft player and they're going to be on your your budget right because um, if they stuck say on your books enough. yeah i would say on yeah. your books but the league pays everyone so no right outside of dps and maybe homegrowns but probably yeah. not even then teams don't have their own books when it comes to player costs but uh, the, the overall strategy i think leaning heavily on let's draft players that we have scouted um 
scouting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I think I mentioned this in our Slack um, on draft day in the middle of all that stuff is that if you had somebody who had no college soccer experience and they got like, like let's say Dave Casper said, okay, Hernan Lozada, you're in charge of the draft. Good luck. And he said, please, someone tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Uh, and I had two minutes to tell him what to do. I would say, look for players that have played for an ACC school, Maryland or Stanford. Stick with that and you'll probably be okay. Um, and sure enough, we're talking about two guys that were in the ACC and one that went to Stanford um, after several years of Maryland players. But it, it, the patterns, it, it's a good pattern because these are the top schools. These are, these are the schools developing the best college players. So um, the fact that, you know Dave Casper has been at Clemson games where Kamarni Smith played and has been at Wake Forest games watching Mike DeShields play. Um, I don't know if he's made the flight out to Stanford, uh, but the Pac-12 network is pretty accessible, um, especially right. if you are working for the team where, you know, the team is like, yes, we'll cover your your Pac-12 uh, yeah. on the, the, the super sports package on the cable uh, bill. Um, so, yeah, the... Um, uh, the the strategy itself, before we go further into the individual players, the strategy itself, I think, is pretty sound. Yeah, and I think as far as drafting, I don't know if they drafted for need this time versus just best available because the the system that Ernan Losada is likely to bring in and his philosophy might require different things than we're used to seeing in some positions like center back. Um, I feel like drafting for need so, is always terrible. Just draft, just draft the best well, players. I mean, you, you might go for both, though. I mean, there's there's a balance. You can say, you know, the best player available is a central midfielder, but you have to draft for fit as well. If the best central midfielder doesn't fit your system or you have a logjam at that spot already, it doesn't make sense to use a very high draft pick on that player necessarily. If you have a player you rate almost as highly, <laughs> but it's at a position of need or a, a style that fits your system better. That makes a lot more sense because I think one of the biggest things for draft picks, why they don't work out in some places is a fit issue. They can be a great player and they could be at a position of need, but if they're not the type of player and fitting the profile of the position or the role that the, the team has in mind, it's not going to work um, in a lot of cases. So I think they were looking at those issues um, in this one. Kamarni Smith, uh, attacker. I think he's left-footed based on some of the highlights I saw. He seemed to take free kicks yeah. left-footed. Um, and I love left-footed attackers just on a personal level. I'm, I'm left-footed and I just, I, I swoon for left-footed attackers. Love me some, some Boscovich. Um, but he gets in the box. He seems to finish. Um, I, I haven't seen much more than the clips that, than the team put out, but Clemson's a good program. Uh, the, the consensus best player in the draft who ended up going number three instead mm-hmm. uh also from clemson um so jason do you know more about kamarni smith at this point or should we just kind of no I, I i mean i would just add i haven't seen a ton of smith um it used to be easier to see acc games when maryland was in the acc but unfortunately um unfortunately for me uh an interest in college football from people running the university has caused me to be uh, my, my sports teams that I cared about, which were all playing in a conference that I knew and understood. I now I face Terrapins games where you might play Minnesota and be like, why, why are we playing each other? And they're going to be like, we don't, I don't know. Um, Jason, you're saying that the, the, the big is not as good as, uh, the ACC. I think it's in pronounced soccer. B1G. 
the the big whatever uh because it's also not 10 teams which is never not going to be irritating um but uh no neither is the the big 12 or the the pack 10 right well why would you name your conference big 10 and then not have it exactly 10 when there's also a big 12 lurking around nearby um the big 12 is not there's not 12 either i know it doesn't none of it makes any sense um it, it turns out be, naming conferences after numbers may have been a mistake. Yes. Uh, maybe just, that was... Just name, just name it the big. That's kind of what the they did. The big. At, yeah, that's at least something. Um, so no, in, We're actually saying that, that, that their naming scheme is correct. Uh, we've come around to it. Good job, Big Ten. <laughs> big. No, nope, uh, big. An era of good feeling. Big. But, uh, maybe it's just an era uh, of bad feelings. The, the, the quality of the men's soccer uh, in the ACC uh, kind of is it, it looks like real soccer, whereas in the big, if we're going to call it this, it already doesn't feel good, um, is kind of a brawl uh, with a soccer ball in the middle of it. Um, there's a lot of, like, going to Wisconsin to play in a mud pit field uh, and duke it out with a bunch of guys that could be lacrosse players and not soccer players. Um, it's not that great of a soccer league. Um, and so I don't get to see the Clemsons or Wakes up close and personal as often now uh, i have to hope that someone nearby someone in the area gets far in the tournament and by nearby i basically mean maryland or georgetown uh and this year there was no tournament uh that i could go see so yeah. um but what i've seen of smith when i've gotten to see him over the couple of the you know his sophomore and junior year especially um i mean you're you're you notice his speed right away he's not like dominic oduro fast um but he is pretty fast um, he makes good runs off the ball. Uh, he's, he's definitely that run the channels type of forward. Um, I thought it was interesting that Dave Casper didn't just say forward or winger. He actually added wing back, um, yep. which wasn't something that I would have thought. I would have thought, you know, winger forward. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but the fact that they see him as someone that might have that, um, that defensive side that a wing back has to have, um, that's an interesting um an interesting aspect. And I also think it's important that the team, uh, you know, with the the potential for playing a one different system, but possibly multiple different formations within that system, um, guys that can play multiple roles are important. And DC traded away a, you know, not that Ulysses Segura was a amazing success as a forward, but he could play as a forward, as a winger, as a wing back. Um, So you add someone that kind of fills that, that spot within the depth chart. Uh, one more guy that can play that many roles. Um, th- the fact that he takes up that international spot isn't a perfect thing uh, at this point because DC's probably, they've got one open unless they decide to circle back on Helman Rebus. Um, so he would be potentially taking up the final international spot they have available. But what we've learned is that if DC makes a big signing, they'll just go get the extra, make a trade and, you know, what are you going to do? Um, so it's not the end of the world. It's not going to keep them from signing a huge difference maker. Um, and if it does, then something else is terribly wrong with how things are going. But no, Smith is uh, a player that I, I I hope that he can get in and compete for some time. Um, but I also, you know, if Griffin Yao keeps him, if, if Griffin Yao stays one step ahead of him all of, of 2021, it wouldn't be a big shock just because Yao is now on year three as a pro whereas Smith would be entering year one as a pro. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see them get time, and I could see them being used in different ways potentially too, because Yao is not a run-the-channels kind of 
right player in we not that we've seen a lot of him as a an out and out forward or mm-hmm. center forward but uh his game doesn't seem to be that style so it'll be interesting they they might complement each other um we'll we'll have to see um Michael DeShields was was the next pick at number five um, immediately after Kamarni Smith. Uh, DC United sending 125,000 in GAM to Atlanta United, I think over two years, um, like yes. 50 in one year and 75 in another yeah. uh, yes. to get the pick. Um, so not trading any players, just financial considerations, Garber Bucks. Um, and, and that tells me that they they either thought someone else was going to take DeShields because the the generally the the public big boards that that our friend Travis Clark and and others put together on their the various sites that cover MLS and college soccer um they didn't really line up with what a lot of teams seem to have on their own boards so it's it's entirely possible that that Dave Casper was pretty sure that that Atlanta or somebody directly behind Atlanta in the the, the order was going to pick up DeShields and they wanted to make sure they got their man, and they did. He's a, a fast, hard-tackling center back who who seems to win a lot of challenges um, in the open field, and and that that's good in a system that's going to be facing counterattacks uh, potentially or or re-counterattacks. Yeah, um, and and uh, speaking with Travis, or not not speaking with Travis, I think he actually wrote this. So reading Travis Clark's. Um, uh, pre-draft uh, stuff, he mentioned that um, there was a certain like level of polarization on DeShields, whether he was either a highly highly rated prospect or, or some people were like, no, don't take him at all. Um, obviously, DC spent money to get in a position to take him, so they were on the, uh, the high end of that read. They, they were saying, like, this is, this is a, a player that's really, you know, really interesting to us. Um, the fact that they made that trade kind of tells you that they're going to end up offering him a contract. Um, yeah. So he's not one to necessarily um, wonder too much about whether he's going to be uh, on the team or not, though we still have this weird, you know, there's this spring season and players do have to choose whether they're going to uh, resolve their eligibility in NCAA or if they're going to actually join their MLS team right away or if they're going to go play in the spring and then show up mid-season or not mid-season early season um which well that applies to smith right but to shield not to shield yeah yeah, yeah. um the shield DeShield... already signed a usl contract yeah. with new england revolution too which it, means that if, if dc United offers him a for dc what's that so the, the only player that falls under this is smith because uh logan pancho actually graduated his eligibility is done for a different reason. right right okay but yeah so yeah uh, DeShield, shield like signed a said, contract in usl yeah. um so if DC United offers him an MLS contract, that deal is is terminated automatically, yeah. and he's a DC United player. If they don't, if they want to just sign him to Loudon instead of signing with DC United and maybe sending him on loan, he they're going to have to pay New England Revolution for for those rights. Which right that would be silly to pay one team to draft him and then pay another team to sign him because you don't want to sign him to the right kind of contract. So I think you're right. Michael DeShield seems pretty likely to get a contract right. and it's a player. They seem to know pretty well, all the connections that are there. He, he came through pipeline mm-hmm. Academy in Baltimore, which is run by Santino Caranta. Uh, and Tino's brother was his main coach there. Pa- DC United have... converted him to center back. Um, uh, Brandon oh, Caranta apparently is right. the, the person who had that idea. So that's why he's even being drafted. This position is because of a Quaranta. 
And then DC United has had so many homegrown players come through Wake Forest. There's, I think, pretty it's it's pretty clear that you can assume a pretty strong relationship between those coaching staffs right. or front offices. Yeah. Ryan Martin was the assistant coach and head of recruiting there for years. So, um, exactly. yeah, this is a, a a combination of I think there's a reason why DC would be on the very positive end of a polarizing player that's been through so many, you know, so many programs that the team has close contacts with. Um, so, you know, in terms of scouting him, I don't think there's any, any doubts that he's, that this is not some throw of the dice. This is someone they think they know really well. Right. Uh, and I, I will point, this is, um, you know, going back to one of my favorite players and DC United's recent history. The last time, uh, United drafted a player and there was some polarization about it. Uh, used a relatively high draft pick for a player that was polarizing. It was Nick DeLeon and he worked out pretty well. Um, so hopefully, you know, we get at least uh, an NDL level player out of DeShields. Uh, Logan Pancho, second round pick for DC United. Stanford uh, spent time with the under 17s and I think the under 19s US team. I think he captained the U17s mm-hmm. even uh, before going to Stanford. Um, the the thing you get reading about him is he seems like a, a leader, like first and foremost, he's a guy who tries to like, seems to do the right thing and set a good example and like leads on and off the field is kind of the impression I got. Yeah. Um, he's, I think he graduated the four Oh, um, he's active in a, I think he, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. He's either active in or actually started a, a uh, suicide prevention. Um, I don't know if it's a nonprofit or if it's just a, a group to try and uh, intervene and help and provide support. Um, I've heard nothing but, you know, high praise for him off the field, but also uh, I've heard on the field that um, I, I've heard at least one person told me that they felt this was DC's best draft pick of the three. Um, at least in terms of using the pick to get a player at, you know, given what you would expect picking the picker value. Yeah. yeah. Um, the fact that he was still there was a surprise to me. I thought late first round, he was going to be gone. Um, you know, the, the, there is also that he's someone that could probably, you know, he's a right back, but he could probably play, um, maybe as a wing back, maybe a little defensive midfield, I think wouldn't be out of line. Um, depending on how he develops and shows in camp and how much um, Aaron Lozada wants mobility at right center back. It could also be someone that does well there too, because he's not, um, he's not a big guy. He actually physically might resemble a little bit uh, Ethan white um, where uh, in a four, four, two, you would say, Oh, maybe he's a little small to be a center back, but in a, in a three, it's not that big of a deal. And he's got that quickness. Um, yeah, again, not necessarily like incredible speed by any stretch of the imagination, but no one's going to confuse him for someone that's slow. Um, technical, you know, comfortable with the ball. He had eight assists. Um, granted, that's playing a more traditional right back, getting up the touchline and putting crosses in, uh, which might may or may not be the role here. Um, we might not see this team pumping in crosses. Adam, congratulations. Uh, I'm, I'm very thankful for that. Uh, if that's the case. Um, but yeah, um, Panchosen, it's 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 an interesting pick. I, I don't know that DC felt like they were going to have him available. Um, I know. I mean, not just because that's what I didn't think was going to happen. I, I doubt the team was like, Oh, this, this is someone that will definitely be available when we pick again. Um, they were probably were having, you know, let's put him on our list, but if he's gone, he's gone. 
you know, I, having operated the the site's uh, mock draft in in the years where we've done the mock draft, um, you you basically the easiest thing in the world to do is just let me list exactly how many players I need to list so that when I'm picking the name is already there. So if we're 22nd, then I'm listing 22 guys. And if someone is above that, then I'll take the guy above it. Um, and I think Pancho might've been in that category uh, for DC where it might've been like, Oh, Hey, big surprise. Uh, he's still there. Great. Um, I I don't know that he's going to end up with DC straight away. He he's someone they could sign with Loudon for a year and then promote, but this is a team that until they, re-sign Chris Odoya Chem, which is still kind of hanging out there at this point. It's hanging out there long enough for I'm starting to wonder. Um, yeah. But uh, if they don't re-sign him, they let O'Neal Fisher go, which, uh, you know, I'm not, I think we've talked about this, not exactly sure that that was the best call. Um, so there's a vacancy right now. Even if they do re-sign Odoya Chem, there's still arguably a vacancy Um with this kind of uh, role, whether this, you know, true right back role doesn't exist in within the team, um, but there's still an opening. So um, I, if I were him, I would be coming in saying like, yeah, why not? Why not me? Why, why not uh, me getting in the first team straight away? Um, And, and hopefully, you know, if if he's playing well enough where normally he would have gotten that and the team is just too good for him to get there, then that's awesome. And, you know, the, the, fallback plan from that is still like well this guy came in and earned a spot so that's cool too because it's a second round pick uh getting a a player on the roster from the second round at this point in time is kind of a bonus yeah for sure with 27 teams in the first round it's it's not that long ago that all the second round picks now would have been third round picks yeah uh, just a few years ago and fourth round picks a few years before that so uh one of the reasons the draft is getting stretched basically uh, along with the rise of homegrown players and, and everything else. Um, moving on to non-draft subjects, uh, something that that may or may not be in the works at this point, uh, Paul Ariola linked with Swansea City on a loan move uh, through the end of their season. Um, Dave Casper confirmed that that talks have happened between DC United and, and Swansea, um, and that you know the, the transfer window in... Uh, England and Wales ends on January 31st. So we know that this will not be a prolonged saga. It'll be over one way or another by then. Swansea, of course, just signed Jordan Morris on loan from Seattle um, with an option to buy. And it sounds like this would also be with an option to buy. But at least one person over in Swansea associated with the team has said he's on a list, but talks haven't really gone anywhere. Like it's not something they're aggressively pursuing. So who knows? He he would seem to be a wing back in their three five two. Um, I think in Losada's three five two or whatever formation he ends up running, he could play a couple of different roles. But I think for Swansea, he would very likely just be a right wing back. Um, and I really do hate to lose Paul Ariola, even just till May, um, because we have Hernan Losada coming in, and it's a completely new system with new content concepts and positioning and everything. And the preseason, I think this year is going to be very important for DC United. And if Ariola is off playing for Swansea, he's not going to get that preseason. He's going to be coming in essentially after everyone else has gone through the preseason and trying to integrate from there, which I think will be detrimental. So uh, I'm sure Paul really wants to go to Swansea and I'm sure he'd do great there. He'd kill it. But 
from a selfish DC United fan perspective, I really want him to stay for this entire preseason. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky situation because, you know, we're talking about, you know, since he's ACL tear, he has 21 minutes with DC and then um, these national team, uh, these couple friendlies with the national team, they've got one coming up um, and that's it. So in terms of building himself back up, he probably needs those serious games right now. Now that he's gotten himself back into shape, he probably needs to roll right into those serious games. I'm sure mentally he also needs um, something more serious than the, the preseason is very important, but it doesn't have a lot of games that have consequence. Um, and he's been going through doing stuff that is very important, but isn't necessarily consequential in that he doesn't have that immediacy of a, re, of a game in the league. Um, so he probably needs that for more than just his own physical shape. But at the same time, um, this is probably the most important preseason DC's had in, in you know, eight years, <laughs> give or take. Um, so yeah, it's it's really important to get everybody on board from from day one, whenever day one happens to be, which we're going to talk about in a little while. But um, yeah, it's it's a tough call because I'm sure he's eager to play. Um, and DC's never been the team to you know prevent someone from moving on um, if if the the math works out and all that. But at the same time, um, you know if you're DC and you let him go on loan and then he gets signed, um, you know, is the transfer fee going to be what it should be? Um, is one seg- segment of the same ownership group going to charge a good price for him? Or is it going to be like a cut rate thing where, you know, I, I know the, the joke that we've been making for a long time is that the, the folks that support Swansea are like, Oh, you know, they're, Rating all all of Swansea's money is to give DC United uh, gilded toilets at their new stadium, and we're over here like actually all of us would really like if the team was spending more money on its players uh, and and other assets or other facets of the team. Um, so yeah, it it does make you a little suspicious um, about whether you'll get the exact same deal that you would if it were insert other equivalent championship club and not right. specifically Swansea. Yeah, one thing that I think Tom Bogert mentioned as a throwaway almost on Extra Time Radio was that Tijuana Cholos has a pretty, I think the phrase was pretty hefty sell-on clause in the the sale to DC United. Mm-hmm. So whatever price DC United gets for Areola, if he is sold, ultimately, is they're only going to get a fraction of it. They'll probably get, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of, of that price. And that's, uh, then you take away the, the money they've put in for, um, DP, like above budget charges and whatever transfer fee they paid. And then out of the rest of it, the league takes a chunk and then the first 600,000 goes on to, or maybe it's a million now goes into the team as Garber bucks allocation money. And then the rest can be reinvested elsewhere in the, the organization. So whatever price they sell them for, there's only so much money they're actually going to recoup um, into the competitive side, which is right. one of the reasons why MLS's Byzantine rules are, are bad for a selling league to have, but yes. uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with Ariola. Um, you know, We'll we'll know like I like I mentioned before we'll know pretty soon because there's a hard out of January 31st for Swansea in their mm. transfer window. 
Uh, other player news, Felipe Martins has been re-signed for one year with a an extra club year option at the end of that. He's recovering from ACL tear in September. Uh, probably won't be back on the field contributing to the team until this summer, probably even late this summer. Um, so this is definitely a... Um, like the team re-signed Paul Areola when his ACL was still being recovered as well. So this is something that the team does to, you know, show loyalty to, to these players. And I uh, certainly hoping Felipe makes a, a full and good recovery. I think he's already back on the field doing ball work, which is encouraging. Yep. Um, the The team seems to have had a pretty good success rehabbing Areola. So hopefully they have the same success with Felipe. He certainly won a lot of us over after we had very few good feelings for him when he originally joined the team, his, his personality off the field and his, I think he's been more controlled on the field for the most part, a few instances here and there, notwithstanding. Um, so Felipe will be back with the team, uh, probably playing central midfield. We'll see exactly what role he has to play in Losada's system, mm-hmm. uh, sooner or later. Uh, and then finally, last news note before we, uh, throw it over to to Paul Tenorio MLS today Monday January 25th announced the the dates for the upcoming season uh they're going to uh, assuming everything comes together on the labor side and the covid side which it's a heck of a turn of phrase right there uh preseason will start February 22nd uh and the first games of the season will be April 3rd and 4th um decision day will be November 7th the playoffs begin 2 weeks later uh, just under two weeks later on November 19th and MLS cup will be on December 11th. Um, so there are dates for this season. MLS is planning to go forward. It won't be the, the early March start that they'd talked about, but they've, they've given players notice that in just under a month's time, they will have to report for preseason. We'll see if this happens, Jason. Yeah. I mean, we've been waiting for some sort of definition of what's even going to happen. Um, and to some extent, MLS's hand is is forced by some of the other things going on. You have USL kind of planting its feet and saying, "This is what we're going to do." You've got a few teams that ground share with NWSL teams who had you know that's they've already they've had said way in advance, like, "Look, these are the dates we're targeting to start Challenge Cup and and then the regular season after that." Um, so it starts to become difficult around the league to continue to just not have a set schedule. You have to sort of start to grab your dates. Um, it, and, and in some, some cities you've got teams that don't even own their own stadium. So you've got to deal with them um, thinking of like the revolution and, and Montreal when they aren't playing at Stade Saputo um, Montreal, uh, the foot club, uh, a club, uh, all about club de foot. Uh, they are a team dedicated to feet uh, and not, the sport of soccer. Um, that's what they, that's why they changed their name. Um, that's, that's, uh, my opinion and not a fact, but you know, that's what their name says. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, who knows, uh, as we're going to talk about it, there's so many, uh, as you, as you had in, in your turn of phrase, we've got a pandemic causing a massive unprecedented uncertainty. And then also, uh, the CBA talks that, uh, maybe there's some precedent in terms of us feeling the uncertainty from them at this point in the process, this close to when things are supposed to start. But it also seems like this is a new level of contentiousness that uh, maybe isn't something we're familiar with. It's the first time the league has forced a third 
negotiation within a year. Yes. Which the players didn't want. They made it clear they didn't want, and the league said, well, we're going to do it anyway. And uh, the precise effects of that we'll talk about after the break with Paul Tenorio. Please stick around. This is Filibuster. All right, say you're at work and uh, something unfortunate or untoward happens and you need some legal representation to uh, to assert your rights in that situation, whether a boss mistreated you, you were fired unfairly uh, or, or, or something worse happens. Ben, in the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia, you know who to call, right? Yeah, you call the Ehrlich Law Office because you have rights. That's right. And your rights matter. And you deserve to be free from harassment. And you deserve to work. The Ehrlich Law Office handles workplace discrimination. They do civil rights. Uh, If you have a wage theft issue, they are there for you. If you have uh, a separation from your employer that you want to to get down on paper, and you're dealing with a a non-compete clause or or something to to that effect if you uh if you feel like your civil rights have been violated by a local government call the ehrlich law office uh if you want a free consultation tell them we sent you go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster welcome back to filibuster the black and red united podcast Major League Soccer plans to start their 26th season on April 3rd. But uh, as we mentioned in the last segment, that depends on the ongoing, seemingly never-ending labor talks between the owners and the MLS Players Association. We can think of nobody better to hash out those uh, CBA talks than one of the people reporting on it most in-depth for The Athletic and a Washington Post alum to boot. Paul Tenorio, welcome to Filibuster. Thanks so much for having me, guys. What are you drinking tonight? Well, I, I I have to wake up early with the little one tomorrow. It's my turn. So I'm not drinking anything. I brought this bottle of, of Four Roses single barrel to for the show in case, you know, this this is this I break this out on nights when I have to talk about the CBA for the third time in a year, you know, a, th- a third CBA negotiation in a year. And if, if we have to come back and do another show about this in March, <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> I will pour it. I will pour it and be drinking it, no matter whether I'm waking up the next morning with a little one or not. All right, now I'm now I'm torn on whether I want that to happen or not because it'd be very bad as a fan of this league for that to happen. But as someone who who wants to hang out with Paul Tenorio and watch him drink bourbon, sounds pretty great. Well, so, we'll, we'll so, do the bourbon at some point in the future, but I I, uh, I will go for the cheaper stuff if MLS starts because you need the burn. You know, you need the burn of it going down when you're watching MLS. Uh, now I just want Dallas to rebrand back. <laughs> so right off the top, Paul, will the season actually start on April 3rd? What are your odds? Yeah, you know, I, I was speaking with a, a source earlier today who asked the same question. Well, I guess we asked each other that question. And I, I, I said, I'm, I'm buying. I'm buying that it starts on April 3rd. Uh, I was selling hard on early March or mid-March. I just don't see any way that it happens at that point. But with this, I, I think they built in some room to get the deal done. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I'd put it at better than 50-50 odds. I'd say, you know, maybe 70-30. And that's still not great, right? 70-30, it's not like I'm yeah. saying like it's a 90% chance. 
because these CBA talks are, you know, they're not, they're not fun ones, man. It's not like even the last February, you know, when things felt positive and it was a totally different tone than what I experienced the first time I was covering CBA talks full time, which is back in 2015, I was in Orlando and, you know, that was their first game in MLS and we didn't know whether MLS was going to kick off two days before that game. And I remember talking to Phil Rollins and him being like, what are you talking about? Like, this is, this is good, a done deal. It's going to be done. And I'm like, I'm not putting that in the newspaper, man. You're lying. You know, like they hated each other and it was much better last February. And then it's just been downhill since. Um, so I say 70-30 because honestly, this self-imposed deadline that the league is, has created for Thursday, I mean, they absolutely could lock the players out, you know, come that deadline. And, you know, that, I, I think that is the most real possibility. So if they extend the deadline on Thursday, which is what they should do and what is the correct decision, this deal will get done, you know, and, and we'll, we'll start play in April. If they lock out, you know, who knows when we see MLS back on the field again. Um, so, it, it, you know, Thursday kind of is the, the make or break moment, but I still think, I think we'll be watching some, some MLS games on April 3rd. Well, I'm hopeful. I, I gotta say, seeing how public the talks went as early as they did. The league went like held a press conference days after they announced that they were invoking force majeure. It seemed like, uh, and, and all but throwing the, the existing CBA out that just felt like a really bad sign right away. Yeah. It's been an interesting strategy from the league. And I think they felt like they were out of control of the narrative around MLS is back. Right. I mean, honest, anyone who read the athletics coverage, I mean, we did a whole story, Sam and I, a whole TikTok of how that deal happened from the player's perspective. You know, it wasn't meant to be like, this is how the deal happened. The the crux of that story was, this is why the players are pissed. And, you know, those types of stories, I think, have impacted the way the league thinks, uh, thought about the approaching this this negotiation. They wanted to be able to put their side of the story out there from the jump. You know, the difference being around MLS is back, that a lot of that stuff was public after the fact, right? Not during or before. And so it's it's become a public negotiation, at least from one side of things, right? And to the point where like the league was put out a statement to the media, was calling us that first time around, the, the union likes to say before we even got the offer, that's not totally true. Like they had verbally been told this is what the offer is, but they hadn't actually received the actual offer from the league to, to review and examine before they were getting calls from media asking them to comment on it. So, yeah, I mean, it's not the way these negotiations have been done in the past. And it's not it's not making any friends uh, with a group that already didn't want to be friends. So, um, yeah, I, like I said, I mean, the tone right now is not positive. It's not positive. And, and I, I, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Uh, Paul, I know in your reporting, you've broken down, you know, some of the proposals that are out there where, um, 
a lot of it is just sort of pushing everything back. So a lot of the scale of when players would reap, you know, certain raises and certain windfalls are getting pushed back. And um, one of the things we all kind of know is down the, you know, it's not that far in the future. We were talking about the 2026 World Cup. And it's always been since it was awarded, it's like this is going to be a huge uh, thing for everyone in American soccer. It's going to be this, you know, amazing bonanza of uh, profit for all of us. Um, I'm not necessarily holding my breath for me, um, but I am curious uh, how much does that aspect of of the the whole thing matter to owners as far as them sort of pushing things back and getting a bigger having more control when that world cup actually takes place in terms of where the money goes yeah it's huge and it's why two years is so important to the league in this negotiation and not one because if you add one more year onto this cba after already extending it one year back at mls's back now your next cba negotiation is in january of 2027 just months after the u.s mexico and canada host a world cup so you come out of that world cup that you've hosted you you which everyone again is anticipating will be this huge boon and platform for the sport, right? And a hope that, you know, that January window and the following summer window is one where you can capture some of that momentum, bring some players who enjoyed their experience here in the U S you know, seize on the excitement around a world cup in this country. Worst case scenario is you get to that January and you're in a CBA standoff with the players, right? Who want to take a chunk of the profit out of that right if you can delay that by a year and you can enjoy the 2027 season before you have to worry about a labor negotiation the owners are in control of that momentum they're in control of where the money goes and how it's spent right discretionary money every time after a cba it's not a mistake that we see discretionary money added to the you know new pots of money right in 2015 Immediately after that negotiation was done, target allocation money came in. You know, this time around, immediately after the negotiation was done, the under 22 initiative came in. That's not a mistake. That's owners, you know, creating pots of money that the players don't get a say in how it's spent. And yeah, they, they want to do that again after the World Cup and preferably without any input from the players and without having to worry about a labor negotiation. So that two years is important. And you know, even today I was talking to someone who said, you know, I, I, I was like, there's no way they'll get the two years. But I, if they get one year, that's a pretty big win for them financially. And, and even in syncing things up with the media rights deal, they're still capable of doing that. And, you know, this source was like, yeah, but, you know, they want that second year. They want that gap between the World Cup and an, another labor negotiation. So it, it's a big deal. And it's why I don't we don't know yet. Um through our reporting, what the union's offer was. But I did take note that today's statement from MLS, again, said mm-hmm. two years. You know, they, that's something they really, really, really want um, to happen here. And it's not just about the financial benefit. It's, it's really about how these negotiations are synced up with the two big events still to come, the media rights negotiation and the World Cup. And so it really feels like, it's two years or none is probably best for the league because if they get that one year, even with the financial windfall they'd be getting for themselves, that's a lot more pressure to get a CBA deal or get a CBA done before the world cup. Because if the players go on strike or it's locked out, that's disastrous. Yeah. I think that's 
going to be their approach to the negotiation. And certainly the people that I'm speaking to um, about this right now that kind of have knowledge of these types of negotiations and, you know, what each side might be trying to get or how they're thinking about it, that's their interpretation is this, you know, that's why that second year matters so much. And, and it's also leading to like a big dilemma in trying to guess what the players might be able to give up that would equal that, you know, without doing a two-year extension. You know, what can the players give? Because when you talk to people who have been involved in these negotiations, you know, even as advisors to players, agents and things like that, you know, MLS players are not millionaires, most of them. You know, these guys are, many of them, living paycheck to paycheck. Even guys who are making the 250, 300, I mean, they've got kids, they've got houses with mortgages that are based on their income. So the idea of taking a 20 or 30% pay cut in the short term, you know, you for sure is the better decision for the player pool. You know, in the long run, it's much better to take a one-year cut than to add on two years to the CBA and, and have the you know, the long-term ramifications that last every single CBA after that. I mean, it never ends, right? Mm -hmm. But you have your mortgage, man. You've got your family. you got things that are real. So what can they give up? And I don't know what the answer to that is. My, my guess, my thought has been maybe revenue share. You know, the revenue share they worked so hard to gain around that media rights deal that still hasn't been signed. Maybe they can push the terms of just that revenue share back and say, okay, it won't kick in until the next CBA. But, you know, that's a pretty big sacrifice too, because you it's like free agency, right? Like last time we talked about free agency in 2015, it was like, oh, they didn't get enough, 28 and eight, are you kidding me? But look at the next the next one, it's 25 and five, right? Or whatever it is now, yeah. 25 and four. It's like a really fine step forward. Well, that's what they want out of this revenue share, right? 25%. Well, now it's 12.5% because they cut it before MLS back, 125 and then 25 The expectation is a legitimate revenue share in the next CBA. Well, if you kick that down the road, well, now you got to wait a whole nother cycle of CBA to make that progress. So, you know, that's you, it's all about this kind of long-term planning for the, for the union side of it. I want to go back to the league's decision to invoke the, the force majeure clause and and whether they have a leg to stand on, whether the players should be at this position to decide whether to take a hit now or take a hit later. They had a contract that was signed during the pandemic. Whether or not the league should be allowed to say that there's an unforeseen act of God. Was this a legitimate or even defensible decision by the league um, just on human terms? Yeah, I mean, this is the crux of this entire negotiation, this debate. It's the column Sam Stasekul's writing right now. He's on his third draft of this column. You know, it's it's very difficult to write because there's two ways to look at it. You know, the first is when they wrote that force majeure clause, there was real legal, a legal battle in that moment between the PA and, the, and MLS on how that line was worded. And, you know, that line of material um, evidence of lack of, of, a, of a lack of attendance, right? If there was a material effect on attendance mm -hmm. that they could trigger force majeure. So, yes, we know 
with this pandemic that there will be a material impact on attendance in stadiums. So by the terms of the force majeure, they have a right to trigger it. However, the idea, the concept of the force majeure itself is that this is an unsustainable loss, that, that the terms of the CBA cannot be executed as written because of what is happening. And when you take that idea of the design of force majeure, and then you put it up against what Mark Abbott and Don Garber have said on the record, which is we can absorb the losses this year, but in return, we want long-term benefits, then no, it doesn't fit with force majeure. These owners are capable of absorbing these losses, which are exorbitant, right? They are exorbitant losses. But these are billionaire, multi-billionaire owners, many of them. And they've said, yes, we can, we can stomach it. We cannot get help, we, no pay cuts, all this other stuff. We can absorb these losses, but we want something in return for that. That's not what force majeure is designed for. Right. And so that right there, to me, is where this really falls. You know, this isn't a good faith negotiation, in my opinion, based on what force majeure is designed for, designed to be. Um, but do they have the legal right to do so? I think so, because of the way that that force majeure clause was written. And, and that's this kind of back and forth that's happening right now in Sam's column. And <laughs> what's playing out in this negotiation, it's really hard to come down hard on the league for triggering something that they can trigger to get something out out of the players you know it, anything that they get in this negotiation is a win for the league yeah i think this is the first time i've heard it actually confirmed that that's the actual language of it i know i i had heard it was phrased as an economic impossibility cut as you said uh, and i know they tried to trigger it to specific percentages lost in attendance i i hadn't heard exactly where where it landed yeah. um, and not, not to interrupt but we you know that was our big you know don garber held a press conference with the media which is rare you know he usually does you know his his state of the league address and maybe like a, a scrum at the all-star game and maybe one other group interview a year so you, you know for him to come out and do this interview showed how seriously the league is taking things but also on that call was the general counsel for mls and i asked the question you know, how are you able to evoke, invoke force majeure? And that was, and she gave that specific line. Um, and that, you know, that brought a lot of clarity to kind of yeah. how they were able to do it. And, and I think I'm not saying that that can't be challenged. I think that it can still be challenged. Maybe not that specific line of the force majeure, though. I, I do believe there, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but in kind of the legal legalese, you know, the word material has a has a certain standard that has to be met. So I'm sure that can be challenged. But the idea of force majeure in general, I think of of whether or not it should be invoked in this case, you know, I think that could still be challenged. And I and I don't I don't think the league or sorry, the union is um, able to challenge it right now. But if the league were to signal that they are um, 
that they are dissolving the CBA, right? At the end of this 30-day negotiation, that they are, you know, saying the CBA is over and we're, you know, we're locking you out. You know, at that point, it can be challenged. Um, and, and that's a very real possibility. I think that would be the first step from the union before they went back to the negotiation. Yeah, um, it would have to be, right? <laughs> but, the, but the question is really, you know, is the league doing this out of necessity? Do they really need to do this? I mean, you know, their own statements they of, know, right? <laughs> or out of convenience, right? Are they taking advantage of this? And that's the question you have to answer, right? Or that they have to answer eventually. Um, and and I, I, think, I think you fall into one of those two categories when you look at this negotiation. You either think that the league has to do it because the losses are so huge and are expected to be big again, or you think that they're taking advantage of a situation that they could survive without doing this again. And I think a lot of the people in the player pool, you know, go with the latter. Uh, I, I will be upfront and say that on this podcast, we have uniformly also <laughs> yeah. taken that position. Uh, it might, might start calling um, Don Garber, Mr. Potter with the way he's responding to, to the downturn here. Um, I watch it's a wonderful life every year. I can't not make that reference. <laughs> um, I guess I want to. I also want to know how the league thinks about this. That, to my mind, they're also kind of cutting off their nose to spite their face here, where they talk about wanting to be one of the big leagues in the world. A league of choice is Don Garber's favorite phrase. I think. Um, how are they going to become that when they insist on paying their players less, even if they keep throwing money in at the high end? I think a lot of people consider soccer to be a weak link sport, and if you are paying the the bench players or the the 12th through 20th players on your roster less we've seen against Mexican teams, the exact effect that has, and it you're going to lose those games. You're not going to be able to compete at, at the highest level and the quality is not going to be what you want it to be. Does the league have any consideration of that? Or are they just kind of focused myopically on, on saving some money in this negotiation? Yeah, I think certainly everything about this negotiation is saving money. And and I it's it's another indication of which owners are still running the show, right? Where the power lies in the kind of greater ownership spectrum. And I wrote a story a few years ago about how there was this divide forming between the old guard and the new guard. That's probably not a fair way to put it. Between because there are some new guard owners who fall into the don't want to spend, want to save money um category you know so you know i think that that category of owner who who wants the more conservative approach you know is is able to um kind of leverage things in this in this negotiation now there is this weird dynamic that the league i think faces right now right you are saying we can't sustain these losses Right. And we need something to help us make up some of these losses, even if we don't get those until the back end. Right. And I think the way the league has been phrasing it is in order to sustain the growth of the league or whatever. Right. At the same time, at the same time, you've got three teams opening new stadiums, which cost money to build. You've got teams looking to build training facilities. Right. Chicago Fire. Joe Mansueto has been on the record about that. Or to build stadiums like Miami. And 
you've got the under 22 initiative, which unlimited transfer fees that you can spend on players. And we're going to see more and more owners using that either both in this window and in the next couple. Sam's not here. So I think he would want us to say young money right now. Thank you. you, The young money. Thank you. I'm glad that uh, we're trying to make that happen. I don't know if you can tell. Um, (laughs) We're we're helping. We're doing our part. um, Yeah. You got the young money and then you've got DPs that are still being signed, right? Money's still being spent on these DPs. Why? Because even those owners recognize that they don't want to stop investing in those areas that they've created to invest. They know that in order to sustain the growth, you have to keep spending and increasing the spending on the player pool. Again, in the buckets that they've created, not all the way through the player pool, like you guys are saying, but in these buckets. And so, you know, the union, Bob Foose's point on the record was, hey, if you look at this and you break it down year over year, season over season, it's about, you know, as we said on our podcast, it's about $530,000 of savings per team per season over the life of the CBA. If that's all you need to spend in order to lock us out, if that's all you need to cut, cut it from the discretionary money. You've got all of this discretionary money that you've created in your rules that can be spent or not be spent. So don't spend it. If the money is that bad, Stop signing TAM players. Stop signing DPs. Don't create young money. And you're saving cash, real cash flow. They don't want to do that. They know that they need to keep doing that. And so where do you, where do you make your gains? Somewhere else that, that will, it's not directly will hurt the players, but that also won't hurt that growth. And, and so now we're in this in-between phase where there's a CBA negotiation happening right here. And, Parallel to that, we're still reporting these signings that are happening, these player signings that are coming in, right? Money being spent because they have to do that. The owners know, even the ones that don't want to spend, they have to, right? They have to for the league to keep growing. And they see that TV deal coming. They see that 2026 World Cup. There is a plan. There is a plan for that. They, they know that growth needs to keep happening. And, and, you know, will it happen as fast as I want it to? No. Or that you guys want it to? No. Will it make it more difficult to compete with Liga MX until they really loosen things up? Yeah, of course. That's, that's, there's no way that the depth can be matched with Liga MX teams, right? with, the, with the salary cap league. It just can't happen. But, you know, this negotiation is being played out along at the same time that the league is trying to add more. They're trying to add more money. They're trying to make the teams better. And, and that is the reality of MLS. You need to spend more to grow. They don't want to do it, but they need to. So they're doing it in these little doses. And that, that's everything about MLS, man. Controlled growth. Controlled growth. How can we do it, have the most amount of control over it as possible, and in a slow fashion that makes everybody comfortable? Not everyone has to do it at the same time. No, not everyone has to do it at the same amounts, but the options are there, you know? And it's so frustrating because if you talk to the people who are actually making the decisions, right, the, the soccer, the CSOs, you know, they're saying, just give me the money, man. Just stop restricting me. Like young money. Like I'm, I'm, I get so angry. Like age is so arbitrary when we talk about why signing a player. It's, it's, it's so stupid. But, you know, the owners look at it as control. Well, Paul, this kind of gets at my, my remaining question, which is uh, very convenient for me. Um, you're talking about this dynamic, um, 
with the owners, but we've we've heard in the past with with within MLS ownership that there are factions within the ownership groups. That, you know, people always uh, talk bad about the Revs uh, and Colorado uh, to some extent, DC um, as maybe on the lower end of that, and then you've got your Toronto and Seattle and LAFC at the other end. Um, do you get the feeling that ownership, at least on the CBA specifically, is really super united or are there maybe some factions even within the, or the factionality does it extend to the cba as well no i mean these guys are businessmen they know mm-hmm. that in order to win the cba negotiation they have to be together a unit united front and that's how they approach these negotiations and you know in past years the owners who have been involved at least back in 2015 you know the crafts were very involved the hunts were very involved So, you know, Mark Abbott is very involved, Todd Durbin from the league office. So, you know, these are voices that, you know, they're presenting a united front. And again, that, that involves everything that involves spending, how to spend. And, you know, I think that you won't hear dissent within the ownership group regarding the CBA, because Really, the, the idea behind how the league approaches the CBA is pretty simple. It's, it's give the players as little control and power over spending as possible, right? Because you can always create more money however you want to create it, right? Like, like we talked about, TAM got created. You know, young money is coming in. This is how the owners say, okay, we'll appease you, owners who want to spend more, but only after... We finish the CBA and then we'll create something that we agree to as the owners who don't want to spend, but that you guys can use to get to spend more money, but not to get that much better than us, you know, where we can still be within reach to beat you to, to make a run in the playoffs once every couple of years. Right. That's what it's really about for those owners. Like, as, that, as long as MLS stays this way where, you know, they create these buckets of money where the big spending owners can spend. But like with all these restrictions on it where they can't really get out of reach. Right. And, and I don't know if you guys read, I'm sure you did the BCG study that Pablo and I, you know, were able to get a hold of. I mean, there's, there's study that study was done to show, you know, the competitive balance only becomes huge at this difference of percentage of spend, right? Like they know where the line is to make sure that those higher spending owners don't get out of reach. And, and I think that's going to dictate, how MLS spends going forward, but no, nah, man, you will not see any owners break off in the CBA talk. It'll be a conglomerate going forward and saying, you know, we want these two years or else we're locking you out or whatever they're saying at this point, certainly that they want those two years added on. Uh, we do have to, I mean, this is a DC podcast, so we do have to let give it, given your uh, roots in the area. Um, I, I know in the past uh, listening to, your podcast that you know it's kind of a maybe like almost like a raw nerve like what dc united is versus what it could be um so i kind of want to give you the soapbox on on that general subject uh this it's kind of an inflection point for the team it feels like with the coaching change yeah i mean it's interesting um i always have this moment i go back to when i think about dc united i was in ben olsen's office in the the you know dim dark hallways at rfk stadium this is after they moved into Audi Field, but the, the offices were still at RFK. And actually, it was the day before the first game at Audi, which is why mm-hmm. I had 
flown back to DC to cover that game because I had to be there for that. Um, for those who don't know, I'm from Alexandria. I lived in Capitol Hill when I was at the Post. You know, I've I've grew up in that I grew up in that area. It means a lot to me. And I remember at the time there was the controversy between the supporters groups and the club around that first game or whatever. And I was like, just, you know, complaining about what was going on and what was the club thinking. And, you know, this is a reflection of like where they just don't get it anymore. And I remember Ben just shrugging at me and like just hitting the nail on the head. And he's like, Paul, man, you're romantic. I get it you're romantic about DC United and that's fine. That's cool. You know? And he's right. Like I am a romantic about DC United because I did grow up in the area. I did see DC United in those early days. And, and, you know, I remember being a kid and going into the bar Brava for the first time and into the tunnels at halftime and experiencing that. And, you know, even for me, my dad's from Costa Rica growing up in a, in a household where soccer was the top sport. Like I had never experienced it that way. Right. Like, I wasn't allowed to go to Saprissa Stadium when I was at Costa Rica for good reason. I was too young and like that was not an environment my dad was in. Plus we're La Liga fans in my house. So like it was Aluela. So like mm. it wasn't going to happen. But like, you know, I, I know what it can be. And I think what disappoints me about DC United is that for so long the fans and the club, the people working the club were told, hey, if you just survive these, these years, you survive these years, when we get the stadium, things will change and the money will come and the investment will come. And that's not really true. I mean, there's been a couple DP signings that, okay, fine, you're spending a little bit of money, but that's not what makes a winning team in MLS. It's not. The money that's spent on infrastructure is as or more important than the money spent certainly on a singular DP. And that is where I think DC United has fallen so far behind, right? Their scouting infrastructure, not good enough. Their academy infrastructure, not good enough. You know, even marketing and sales and all these areas like that, they're just so far behind. And, you know, are there areas where they're starting to make progress? Sure. Like the, the facility in Loudoun is progress, right? That it, it does matter whether or not you have a training facility like that and, you know, how they're able to utilize it with a, a second team and creating that, that clear pipeline. But, you know, when I did that story on these kind of dueling factions of owners, I, I think it was in December of 2016, I spoke to Steve Kaplan and I came away from that conversation super impressed. And I was like, man, like this guy is saying all the right things like he gets it. You know, he, he understands that more money needs to be put in, more investment needs to happen, not just for DC United, but for the league to take the next step. But it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. And so, you know, my hope is that somewhere along the way now that there's an investment made at least in one area that says this is who we are, right? So you're either going to say, okay, we're the Portland Timbers, right? We're not going to be Seattle, which is below LAFC in Toronto and Miami and Atlanta, right? But we'll be right under Seattle, you know, and that's fine. You spend at the first team levels there and you do a good job, you'll be competitive. But they don't do anything in academy, right? Like they, they've just kind of given up on that. I don't want to say I'll get a call from Merritt yelling at me, you know, like. <laughs> he he loves the show. Yeah. yeah. Merritt Paulson, famous <laughs> filibuster listener. Yeah. So, you know, like. That's fine. 
you know, I'm, I've, I've turned a corner with the academy spending. If you don't want to have an academy, don't have an academy. Fine. You know, be a short-term thinker and put all your money into the first team, but embrace that and be that. Or DC United, hey, man, I grew up playing soccer in the DMV, man. There's a lot of talent there. Then I covered the hell out of youth soccer for five years at the Washington Post. Like, I know what's there. You know, I saw Andy Nahar. I remember getting a call from my former teammate who played at Edison High School, you know, calling me and saying, hey, there's this kid who's playing varsity. You need to go see him. It was like two or three games into Andy Nahar's high school career. He was like, <laughs> yo, this kid was playing pickup soccer in front of Edison. He doesn't speak English. He's really good. He was like, Pablo, go watch him play. And I went and I watched him and I wrote a little notebook piece about Andy. And that's the first time I saw Like, those kids are there in D.C. They're there. Like. Put money into that. Be Philadelphia. That's fine, too. You know, Richie Graham has said, here's a bunch of money. Only put it in the academy. And it's starting to pay off for Philadelphia. I just want D.C. to choose a lane, you know. If you're going to be kind of a, a halfway spender on the first team and a halfway spender on the academy, and you can't really – it's going to be what it is, which is, yeah, they'll be competitive, and they'll probably make some playoff runs. But I think they're going to struggle to have a sustainable identity. And, and that ultimately is what leads to long-term success. And it was a, a lot easier to ask Dave Casper to do that in the past, to, to scrabble these rosters together and to you know, find a homegrown every once in a while that plugs a hole and you, know, you make a run. And then the next year, the worst team in MLS, and then you re-scrabble the roster and you make a run. And then the next year, you're, you're, again, you're in this scramble. It's a lot harder to do that now. So pick a lane. That's all I want from DC United now. My expectations, what I'm asking for is dropping, you know, but just pick a lane and, and put real investment into it. Or be Seattle, be Atlanta, spend a crap ton on everything. I wouldn't mind that either. <laughs> <laughs> I would certainly enjoy that. Uh, I have my own notes, but, but I won't. Uh, uh, I have my own podcast here. We'll do that another time. Uh, <laughs> Mostly, I want to thank you now for for coming on the show, Paul. This was this was a really great conversation. Um, for our our the very few listeners who don't know where to find you online, uh, let them know. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, you know what you can find me at Sam Stayskull. Most of my bylines are with him, anyways. <laughs> on um, no, at Paul Tenorio on Twitter on the Athletic. Thank you guys for having me on for listening to our little horrible podcast that we do where we make fun of each other and, and like just complain about everything. Um, but, uh, and, and thanks for and that's allocation disorder. Allocation I don't think we've shouted it out yet. Yeah. That's the name of the pod. But, um, you know, also uh, shout out to, to covering DC United and to sticking with them through everything. It is a great club. It does have a great history. And, you know, I, I, I remain optimistic and romantic about what it, uh, it can and will be one day, but, no, I got to stay on him. I got to stay on him with coverage and, and stay on Pablo to stay on him with coverage to <laughs> keep pushing him the right way. Spoken like a true journalist. Well, you know, it's because I haven't had enough of the four roses single barrel tonight, guys. I'll, I'll remedy <laughs> that next time, I promise. <laughs> Find us, of course, at blackandredunited.com. We're on Twitter at filibusterdcu, at blackandredu for the, the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can do that at patreon.com slash filibuster. 
download, subscribe, rate, review, wherever you get your podcasts. Mostly, though, tell a friend about the show. Tell them about this great interview with, with Paul Tenorio next time you're talking about DC United. For Jason and Ben and thanking Paul one more time, I'm Adam Taylor. We'll talk to you again real soon. Say goodbye, Jason. Stardust. Thank you.